Hi, and welcome to the Southern Connecticut Church of Christ podcast. We've provided a collection of sermons, our midweek lessons, music, and many more tools to help you grow in your walk with God. We are living in an unprecedented and challenging time, but we invite you to listen in and be encouraged as we fight through this together. Be sure to subscribe and feel free to share this podcast with your friends and loved ones. Thanks for listening. We're not judging each other compared to ourselves. We're judging people based on their own abilities. And if they say, I need help, that we're there, man, I'll spot you. I got you. I got you. And that's the, that's the mindset. That is, that's the attitude. And so the, the point of, of the class today is a product of actual discussions I've, I've been having with brothers and sisters. Uh, I've known for years. Uh, I've been listening to different podcasts. I've been studying out my scriptures. Uh, and so the four points I want to make tonight is a product of certain uh, conversations I've had. People have had legitimate concerns uh, and questions and fear. There's a lot uh, of all of this. There, there are two big emotions I see coming out is, is fear and anger. And I think we should uh, deal with that. And the four points I'm going to quickly make, I think, addresses these things from a spiritual point of view. You know, Paul makes a big point of saying, me, not the spirit, or the spirit, not me. He makes a point of saying, this is what the scripture is saying, and then this is my opinion. I'm going to, you know, I think it'll be obvious, but the scripture speaks very well for itself on this. So I, I, I was very impressed with uh, um, the Philippos. I listened to their thing from a couple weeks ago, and they talk about intentionality. And I think that's the thing that impresses me about Jesus. In his short, in his relatively short life, he accomplished so much because he had such intentionality about things. He went about things with a purpose. The word itself has become a little more in vogue, but it just means to be deliberate, to be, you know, to premeditate, to think about what you're going to say, think about what you're going to do ahead of time, not just constantly reacting. And so uh, that's kind of what I want to talk about. The four areas that I see Jesus's intentionality for us to be a church that's diverse, it's not going to just happen by happenstance. There's a 90 to 95% chance it won't happen. Like, we'll just be this homogenous, you know, sort of all-Korean church, or we'll be this all-whatever church. Uh, and if we're going to call all nations together, it's going to happen with intentionality. It's not just going to happen when we ignore uh, the big things. The, the, the first scriptures uh, I want to point out is in, he was intentional with his words, his affirmations. Affirmation is things you, you put out there. You affirm things. It's like a, a testimony. In, in Matthew 5, verse 21 through 22, he says, uh, this is one of his earliest messages. We all call it the Beatitudes, and this was his longest recorded message. And he says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or a sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. This is not just a good idea that we should be very careful in how we address and talk to each other. This is like, you know, people are like, well, do you think he means it literally or figuratively? I just think he means it. I think he's very serious about the way we talk to each other. It has to be, you know, back in Proverbs, it, it, the Bible talks about how we consider what we say. A wise man considers and weighs his words. So this is a very 
touchy subject in general, the differences in culture and race. And then this culture, this culture is deliberate about not wanting to address it. So we in the church, if we say, oh yeah, we're going to take this on, be careful back up in Galatians that in taking on a sin, you don't fall into a trap. You don't fall into, you know, one of the things that when I'm in my conversation with Ralph, he's like, we need to be careful we're not uses, using the, the language or the divisive language of the world. And I think that's a valid point, that the way we talk to each other is very serious to God. I value my opinions a lot. Whenever Jim, Jim is one of my best friends, whenever Jim and I are talking and he's always wrong, and if he just listens to my opinion more, he would be right. I, and we will go back and forth with each other. That's the kind of relationship we have. But if we find that we are causing somebody around us to struggle, you know, like we need to be careful, you know? And, and I find that one of the things that, uh, I'm stealing some of Ralph's thunder here, but one of the things he talked about, and we had all been talking about how do we even start a forum, a public forum where we talk about such touchy things. And, and the, the scripture, which I'll talk about in a little while in Matthew 18, talks about if you have a conflict with a brother, you go to that person just between the two of you. There's an importance to it just being the, between the two of you at first. And the Bible says, if you have, if he listens to you, if your brother listens to you, you won them over. The word there is lucre. It's almost like a prophet. Do you know what I mean? It's a prophet, not in uh, to prophesy, but prophet as in extra money. It's like you are now profitable in your relationships uh, as in lucrative. And so the idea there is, look, all these relationships are valuable to God. And if there's a conflict, we don't just put people on blast online. We go just between the two of us and we sort of work that out. Sure, we're not going to call them raka. I'm always fascinated by that word because the word by definition means like a useless person, like somebody worthless. And to God, none of us are worthless. There's nobody who'd be like, ah, let him go, let him leave. We don't care. We do care. You know why? Because God cares. Let me show you his attitude. Matthew 18, I just quoted that. Matthew 18, 6 and 7. It says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck, pretty graphic, right? And to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. And it is true. Racism is from the world. And apparently it must happen. This is a battle we must fight. And it's not just racism, it's sexism and all the other injustices. They are coming out of the world. The very first thing we do, though, in carrying each other's burden is to make a decision. I'm not going to add to your load and I'm not going to trip you up. I'm not going to stick my foot out and cause you to stumble. That is the first decision we can make. There is a, a saying in medicine. It's in Latin, of course. It's primo non nocere. And the idea is that first do no harm. As a physician, I may not know right off the bat what's going on with you or how to help you, but I should not make it worse. And if I don't know, I need to be honest and say, okay, I think this is what's going on. Let's get you this kind of help right away. First, do no harm. And so at the very least as disciples, we don't always know what the right thing is to say. I mean, it's the, I, I heard a brother share the last time when we were on the forum with uh, Michael Burns, and the brother says, man, sometimes I wish I knew what to say, you know, to help. And the truth is, all of us at times don't know what to say to help a situation. But at the very least, don't make it worse. Don't stick your foot out, trip somebody up, that sort of thing. Um, 
the the and then in 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 Matthew 18 I already referenced that it it does talk about having those conversations one on one and so we should make a commitment right now that look at my opinion as much as I value it is not more important than somebody's somebody else's faith God uses very graphic language to say how upset he is if even in our carelessness or even in our opinionated state, we destroy somebody else's faith. We cause them to stumble. We call them, cause them to fall. That's not cool. My opinion, my, my affiliations are not more important to God than the faith of what he calls these little ones. You get the sense he's, they're so precious to him. We're just these little toddlers and he would do anything to protect us. You can't see okay. me, right? Still with me? And so we have this, we have this idea that, you know, this is just how I feel about things and we're just going to share regardless. I will not wear, Paul says, I won't eat meat in front of somebody if it causes them to struggle. And I have the decision, I won't have a discussion with anyone. I won't wear a shirt, a hat. I won't make a joke. I mean, this needs to be, I won't send a tweet or a text or get into some sort of philosophical anything online if it's going to cause somebody to struggle. Uh, Nicole, my, my baby sister, Nicole, and I, we used to, she's from uh, Yale, and uh, so she knows everything, and I love proving her wrong. And Nicole and I would argue all the time. It was, it was just the funnest thing to do. And, and then one day, a brother came to me and said how that made him struggle, because it was like, oh my gosh, you guys were so heady and you know, sarcastic and everything. And I was like, bro, I'm so sorry. And I think that's the last time we did that. Just, just having one of those mindless argument about nothing just to show, you know, how erudite and learned or stubborn we are. So make it your decision that I'm not going to say anything, whether online or in person, uh, that's going to cause my brother to struggle. In Ephesians 4 verse 29, it says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So not only is it great for me to watch what I'm saying, it's great for the person who I'm building up. And then there are other people listening. There's like this tertiary benefit to it. So that's one of the decisions I think we have to make a commitment to ourselves for this reason. The second thing I think Jesus was really intentional about was his advocacy. You know, I've heard people say things like, well, you know, this whole black life matter things and the black white divide in our society, this is not my fight. I have nothing to do with this. All right, well, let's see how Jesus would feel about that. In Luke 4, verse 18 through 19, uh, this is uh, Jesus, he went uh, to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath, this is early in his ministry, by the way. He's still hanging around his own hometown. Uh, and it says, on the Sabbath, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Wow. That's either the most haughty thing. This thing was written about 700 years before he came here. And he says, that's what I'm doing here. And if you believe in the, the divinity of Christ, right there in Isaiah, Isaiah 61, it also showed that Jesus' attitude in heaven, when, when things were becoming socially and spiritually bankrupt on earth, 
his decision was, here I am, send me. That was his attitude. And so he was about the poor. Jesus said, I am here, not for the people who are necessarily doing all that great and feel like they don't need anybody else. He says, I am starting at the margins. I'm looking out for the poor. I am looking out for the prisoners. I am looking out for the blind. The word there isn't just sightless, but the idea of needing help. I'm looking out for the disabled. I'm looking out for people who can't even make a living for themselves. And he says, I'm looking out for the oppressed. If Jesus landed today, where would he, he said to me, he would say, you know, he lands here in Southern Connecticut and he finds us disciples and he's like, great, take me to your poor. Where around here are the helpless people? Tell me where you have your prisoners and your oppressed. Who would he find there? And would those people recognize us? He's taking on the fight. He is deciding, this is my battle. You know, in a, in a schoolyard, you, you have, let's say, 1% of the people are bullied. It's said that 1% of the population are sociopaths. So let's say you have a bully, right? You have a schoolyard with 500 kids. And one kid goes up and just starts wailing on, you know, the, the guy with the thick glasses or whatever it is. And the other people are just silent. Now, it turns out if the other 490-something kids jump this bully, you know who would win. The bully is not that bad. But bullying goes on, not because that bully is so powerful, but because the rest of us can be silent. And Jesus advocated for the downtrodden. And the word literally means to add your voice. Jesus did not destroy the Roman Empire. Well, not in his lifetime anyway. Jesus did not bring about these huge systemic changes in his 33 and a half years. What he did was he added his voice to things. He said, hey, 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 like if enough of us just be like, hey, stop that. What does this guy do to you? Leave him alone. We have to have the mindset of advocating, just stepping in there and say, all right, that's enough. That's enough. This is just pure oppression. This is not called for. I mean, we have to have that mindset of rescuing the poor and the imprisoned. If Jesus were to go into prisons, you, not everybody there deserves to be there. And he's not even talking about unlawful imprisonment. He just knows that these people are probably going to be receptive to his message more. And that if we claim to be disciples, that needs to be our mindset of, hey, show me your poor. Show me those people who are being trodden down on. Show me those people who can't make it on their own in society. And if that's not our mind, and, and, and then you'll realize this is not a racial issue. This is not a black versus white issue. This is strong versus weaker. This is power versus the oppressed. And, and by the way, this is, you know, I've lived in different places across my life. I have seen, you know, sometimes people use the argument, well, what about black on black crime? What about it? That when you see other evil, you don't go, oh, I'm not going to fix this one because there's so many others. So just let them all you know, let them all burn. No, the idea is whatever we can do, we do well within our range. In fact, there's a, there's a Jewish term for it. I was fascinated to learn. It's called tikkun olam. Um, and again, if I'm mispronouncing somebody's uh, uh, Hebrew here, and the, the idea means you fix the world where it comes in contact with you. You fix the world where it touches you. Jesus didn't run. In fact, I, there's no evidence he ever traveled around the globe at all. I've traveled around the globe more than Jesus. But he fixed the world right where he came, came in contact with it. And that spread through the life of his disciples and so on and so forth. In fact, I'm going to make this point uh, uh, a little later on. It, it was impressive how he lived his life. Because 
he took on what he could and that and he did it in such a pure way that that spread it spread through his 12 guys then through his 72 then through the 120 then through the five you know the 3000 pentecost and all of this and that's what changed the world and it's continuing to need changing but it's going to start with each one of us you know sort of saying hey i'm here to advocate for those people who can advocate for themselves it's not a racial issue it's a justice issue we stand up and talk to, and it doesn't help, you know, one of the things I've never been uh, sexually assaulted in my life, but as a physician, I, I work with people who are, and something about that just breaks my heart. And I've been analyzing it and trying to figure out why. And, and it turns out my, my, my mother uh, was raped as a teenager, and that's, that's how my, my oldest brother came about. And when I was older, she sort of shared it with me. I was already a doctor and she sort of opened up and talked about, you know, how naive she was. And, you know, she didn't, she, nobody told her anything. She never had that talk. And so somebody of prominence did that to her. And then I found out my sister was also raped as a, as a teenager. My mom would watch her like a hawk. And to this day, I still can't even watch a movie that depicts any scenes like this. It's, it's too much. Uh, there are people who are being powered down on in so many different ways. And Jesus's idea was, well, we should interrupt that. We should do something about that. That's why I am here. And if we say we pledge allegiance to Jesus, then we're not reinventing Christianity. We're trying to define it for ourselves the way he defined it for him, the way he defined it, 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 defined it for us, that, hey, that's what my life is about. If I'm in a situation where I can put a stop to oppression, to poverty, this is not just, oh, let's get everyone to heaven. This is about having life to the full here too, and then there's heaven. Um, and so the third thing I notice about Jesus that I think could help us as we try to carry each other's burden. Um, I, one thing, I, I, I'm going to talk about his approachability. There's, I, I'm reminded of one of my points here. If you feel like I don't have to fight this fight. It turns out you are right. You don't have to fight this fight. But recognize that's a privilege. That is a privilege not everyone has. There are some people who don't choose to fight this fight. The fight is brought to them. They can't go shopping. And I say they just because, again, I don't want to make this about me. But you, they can't just walk down the street or in certain neighborhoods. They can't just drive down a public road. They can't fall asleep in their dorm without somebody exercising power over them. That's what oppression is, somebody just stepping on your neck. It's like, hey, you, you, when you're the one seeing that, you could say, this has nothing to do with me. What would Jesus say? He says, I'm here for that person. Cut it out. Uh, the third point I'm gonna make is uh, approachability. The thing that fascinated me about Jesus is he came as a finite person. He came as a Jewish guy. Um, and at the time, the Jews were oppressed. They were being powered down on by the Romans. And then you would think, like, Jesus would be embittered about this. Um, let me show you something in Matthew 8, verse 5 through 10. It says, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? 
The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say, I tell this one, go, and he goes. And I said to that one, come, and he comes. And I said to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Do you understand how <laughs> insultive that is to Jewish people? For Jesus to be complimenting this Roman centurion, a centurion is someone who is in charge of a hundred soldiers. You would have 60 centurions that make up a legion. Whenever they're going to war, they would count off. These guys were like captains or lieutenants. Actually, they were close to the captains. And back then, they didn't have a separate police force. This, these guys are the ones who kept things, the status quo, in order for the Romans. And what all the Romans wanted was allegiance, you know, to Caesar, and your money, and your taxes. That's it. And this is the way they exercise it through these soldiers. And look at Jesus' attitude with this guy. There's no sense of bitterness. In fact, the guy approaches him, and not even from a position of power, like, hey, you need to come do this. On the contrary, because of his insight into who Jesus is, it's like, I'm like, he must recognize Jesus is like an undercover boss. Jesus has authority, but Jesus isn't necessarily ex exercising that. So many times we see that at the cross. He goes, don't you think I could call down 12 legions of angels to stop this? Jesus didn't always exercise authority. Jesus had authority. He had privilege, but he was always using it for others. He wasn't abusing anyone. If anything, he was addressing the abuse of others. But the thing that fascinates me about the scripture is how unbitter, if that's a word, he is towards this policeman. This guy who is the instrument of oppression of his people. But when it comes to an individual, Jesus saw his heart. And Jesus was like, that's amazing. I personally think Nicodemus would have been offended by this. I don't know if you read the scripture before it came out. But Nicodemus was like a teacher. And, and Jesus' attitude towards him, like, wait, you're a teacher and you don't know this? And here he's putting down a Jewish teacher and he's celebrating this guy who is a Roman soldier in charge of other Roman soldiers because of his faith. To Jesus, it wasn't a racial issue. It was a spiritual issue. And this guy had great faith. And in fact, we're going to see in a little later on how this guy's faith, in, in my opinion, uh, changed the world. Because later in Acts, we see that the coming of the, the, the opening of the kingdom, the thing that we're part of right now, opening to the Gentiles through a devout, God-fearing centurion. And I don't know how many of them they were, but my conjecture is it was the same guy who understood that Jesus had power and he could heal from afar. And Jesus was like super impressed with his faith. And I believe that's the same guy that was praying in Acts that Peter later went to and, you know, the spirit fell on them and they all got baptized. Uh, so Jesus was very approachable. And that's what we ought to be doing with ourselves. The, first, the fourth and final point I want to make, it actually has two stories in it, was he was intentional in his associations and alliances, in his relationship. And then I'm going to have Ralph speak after this point. Um, it says, uh, it, it's in uh, John 4, verse uh, 3. It's actually the whole story. In fact, this is one of the longest recorded stories in the Bible. Remember, the Bible is prime real estate. 
it's not like people just tweeted out things and it made it in the Bible. There were scribes who would spend a lot of time making sure this was documented. And this is one of the longest encounters in the Bible. And so the next time you read this encounter, sometimes I ask myself, why does God want me to know this? Like, what about this story took all this time over thousands of years to get here? What, why does the story take us so much real estate in the Bible? And I, and I didn't have time to go from the whole chapter of John 4, but it's him meeting the Samaritan woman, basically. Um, something you have to know about the Samaritans real quick is that there was enmity between the, the Samaritans and the Jews, and it went way back to the splitting shortly after Solomon, when the kingdoms had split and you had Jeroboam and, and then they divided that, look, we don't want to go down to Jerusalem to worship anymore. That was in the South. So the Northern kingdom from the get-go, they start, this was before the Babylonians came in and put them into exile. So the Northern kingdom started doing their own thing. They started incorporating a lot of outside religion and a lot of, they started intermarrying with other people. So right off the bat, they, they were always considered sort of a half breed because it was like they're part Jewish and part other people. And then the Babylonians came in. In fact, the Northern kingdom fell first and all the people were sent off into exile and then a bunch of other people who the Babylonians had conquered were put into that place. They literally just sort of mixed them up to diffuse their language and diffuse their power. And so the, the, the Babylonians just sat in control of that whole area. And so when, when the, the Jews had come back from exile, and it was only 50,000 that came back, and it was an estimated millions that went away. Uh, when the 50,000 came back, they went to the southern kingdom and reoccupied Jerusalem and so on. But to the north of them was Samaria, and they just had nothing to do with those guys. By the time they came back two generations later, they were unrecognizable of being of Jewish descent. So, in fact, Jesus himself, when he was sending out the 12, told them not to go into the Gentile town or to go into the Samaritan towns. So it, they were viewed as not Jewish. But above that, above Samaria, was it, north of that is Galilee, <laughs> which is where Jesus was born. And so for him to come down to Jerusalem, which is where he eventually died, you either, if you were Pharisee and so on, you wouldn't even go through Samaria. You wouldn't go through Samaritan towns. You would go over to the river because the Samarit their territory went all the way to Mediterranean Sea and into the Jordan River. You'd cross the river, go down the Decapolis, if you see this on a map, and then come back into Jerusalem. Now, Jesus would just cut straight through there at times. And, and so... In fact, I've always wondered, if the Jews were trying to kill him so much, how come he would escape home? Because they wouldn't follow him through Samaritan towns. And he had no problem traversing the territory. So with that little backdrop in mind, by the way, Jesus did eventually send the 72, after the 12 came back, he sent the 72 to enter Samaritan towns. But in the first time he sent them out, he said, stay only in Jewish towns and don't even go into Samaritan territory. So in John 4, uh, 3 through 9, it says, so uh, if you read the first the verses in John 4, it talks about how the Jews were getting jealous again that he was out baptizing them. And so they were coming after him. So he says, so he left Judea, that's the southern part, and went back to Galilee. So he had to go through Samaria up to Galilee, which is north. Uh, now he had to go, now he had to go through Samaria. Uh, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, uh, or Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, uh, will you give me a drink? 
his disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that ask you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, I wish I could take this through verse by verse because anyone remember the All Connecticut service about two years ago, I think Sasha had preached on this and how many lines Jesus was crossing. He was crossing gender lines. He was crossing uh, religious lines. He was crossing ethnic lines, racial lines. And, and that's how Jesus does it. But he was intentional, in, in my opinion. That I think this is an area he knew. And we always assume it's a miracle that he told her about his life. It amused me to consider that maybe it was a miracle. Maybe he passed through there so much he actually did know this woman. And she didn't realize every time he's passing through, she's with a different husband. And he's like, you've been through five by my account. But I do think it's a miracle that he was able to tell her about her life. But Jesus was very comfortable in this space. But what blows me away is he just simply starts up a conversation based on a need. And she says, whoa, but there's a wall between us. In fact, there's several walls between us. And he's like, he's trying to elevate the conversation to being spiritual. But she's like, I can't get past that because there are these walls. Later on, um, and, and Jesus was not unaware of these walls, as I said. He actually did not consider Samaria a part of Jewish territory. And what I learned from this is, look, it doesn't help to be colorblind in a color-coded society. Eventually, Jesus had to deal with this, not because he's racialized in his mind, but because this woman is. Remember how far back that history went, more than 14 generations early? The people we talk to, the people we reach out to, they are in the, the little cubicles defined by the world. If we don't address the issue, they don't think we get it. One of the things as a physician that this reminds me of when I'm training my students, I ask for a differential, like, what do you think is going on? And they don't want to, and I ask them in front of the patient, and they don't want to bring up like cancer or something that's going to scare the patient. And I explain, I can assure you, this patient is in here today looking worried. They've already considered <laughs> that this might be cancer. So talk about it. And you would be surprised how talking about how I, yes, I've considered cancer. I don't think you have cancer, but here's some workup we need to do. The patient actually feels more anxious when you don't talk about their concerns, their reality, because they think you didn't think about it. You forgot about it that you have to address what the world is set up. Jesus didn't set up this barrier between Samaria and Judea. And in fact, look at verse 22, because I've heard people in our fellowship say, oh, the minute you start talking about race, it's going to shut people down and, and then you're in the wrong. Sure, it'll make people uncomfortable, but just because people are uncomfortable doesn't mean you've done something wrong. In, in, in verse 21, Jesus says to a woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Here's verse 22, which I find controversial. He goes, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Say what? But I actually think he is speaking that language to address the stuff. It's several times. If you read the whole story yourself, she brings up the whole Jewish thing several times. But you're a Jew. And you Jews, you think you know everything. And just, this is her reality. He does not ignore it. He eventually just bigfoots the topic. <laughs> and 
how do I know that he, like ignoring it doesn't make it vaporize in her mind. This is how she grew up. This is how generations before her grew up. We are not associated with the Jews. And how do I know Jesus did this successfully? Because if you read on down in verse 39, after he, he wins this woman over, it says in verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believe in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days because of his words, many more became believers. Two days back then, a day started around now. It's like around sunset. So Jesus got to town in the heat of the sun. They don't count that as one. If you're in the hotel industry, he really stayed there three days. He stayed two nights. <laughs> but th this doesn't happen. Jews don't drink from Samaritans. Jews don't eat with Samaritans. And what Jesus wound up doing is he went to their house, went to their town deliberately. He engaged them deliberately. He builds an alliance with them deliberately, intentionally. And at the end of the day, we see the success of him actually addressing the racial issue only because it was in the way of his spiritual message. He starts out spiritual, but the woman can't get past. I, this is probably the first Jewish man that she's ever talked to her whole life. But she can't get past the fact that these lines are there. When we as a church talk about racial issue, it is not something we created. I sound like Billy Joel. We didn't start the fire, but we have to address it. We have to talk about it in a healthy, spiritual way. Then we could get to spiritual matters sometimes, but it is in people's minds as, as real as the seat you're sitting on right now. And if we're not going to address it, people will not feel like we can relate or we know what, you know. And that's starting within the fellowship, not even talking about reaching out to somebody who has been heavily racialized in the world. And it says, and, you know, I, I think about the impact of that, how, in fact, to, we talked about the impact of his interaction with the centurion and the impact of the, in every state in the union right now, there's a good Samaritan hospital and it's going to be because of the story and my last, my last point, and then I'm going to let Ralph talk, I promise. In Luke 10, verse 25 through 37, it says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to go by down the, the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too a Levite, they were the, the keepers of the law, by the way. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil uh, and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and, and gave him to the innkeeper. Look after him, he says, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And I'm not going to go into the moral of the story because every kingdom kid 
uh, knows the story and what it means. What fascinates me about this is Jesus is intentional about celebrating the Samaritans. He knows his audience. The Samaritans are, are looked down on. The ostracized, downtrodden, relatively impoverished Samaritans, the marginalized Samaritans, is the one who's the hero of the story. But the most important, most important of why this whole story is there is what was the question he was answering? What was asked of him? How can I be more neighborly? How do I react in a, in a medical emergency? No, the question that was asked of him is, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I get to heaven? It is impossible to bifurcate how, we all know it has something to do with loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself, something like that, right? The two greatest commands. But did we know it involved this degree of involvement? The way we get to heaven is not to be passive. It is not to not address the injustice of the world. The way we get to heaven is get more involved, not less, not to seek our own comfort. The question Jesus is answering for this guy is how do I get to heaven? And Jesus is saying, this is the way you need to be towards people who are different from you, different ethnicities. Our very salvation is bound up. No one on this line would argue, well, there are some sins in the Bible, and I feel like I don't have to listen to all of them. Everybody would be like, no, you should avoid all sins. I know we're not perfect, but our effort is 100% to avoid all sins. But there would be people who would argue, do I really need to treat my neighbor a certain way? Like, that's not optional. And in fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop on this point and, and just turn it over to Ralph, and then I'll come back and I'll just give uh, four quick summary points. Uh, Ralph, you up? You ready? I'm ready. All right. Thank you, Garth. And I have, um, I have it all written out, and I time this, so it's, it's eight minutes, I think, the most. So it's just uh, one point. I really don't have, even have a, a caption to the point. It's just uh, really about carrying each other's birds and unity of the church. And by the way, I did get a text, uh, Garth, from <laughs> someone who believes they're a bigger scholar than you. <laughs> that, uh, your Greek and your Hebrew were acceptable. And okay, good. Okay. I feel better. Here we go. In the New Testament, the phrase one another, as it relates to how Jesus commands us to relate to one another, occurs 59 times. The Greek word that's used is alalon, which also means each other. So those two are very interchangeable. 11 of the times, 11 of those 59 times, it specifically says for us to love one another. Other phrases in those 59 includes be devoted to one another, serve each other, be at peace with one another, accept one another, stop passing judgment on one another, forgive, encourage, be kind, be compassionate, also to carry the burdens of each other. So what I want to do briefly is to get a bit deeper into the meaning and importance of how serious God is on our unity and how we treat one another. A good parallel study to this is how adamant God is to watch out for anything that could cause a division within our fellowship. But that's not what today's focus is on. So we are one body. We all know those scriptures, that we're one body. So before Jesus went to the cross, he pleaded with God in John 17 that we would be as united as they are, that we would be one as God and Jesus are one that we would be united 
in a way that shows the world who Jesus is singularly through our unity, our love, and our devotion to one another. The only way that this would be possible is for God to reconcile the only true division that existed between human beings. Not an artificial division which men have been creating for centuries. It's the, this is the only God-recognized and ordained division that really matters. And we're going to be going to Ephesians 2 if you want to go there. That's the only scripture really I have. But to summarize 11 through 13, it says, Paul talks about the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. How all of us who were once considered Gentiles were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, without hope and without God. That's basically what the Samaritans was at that time that Garth was talking about. But it was through the blood of Christ that we have been brought near. So we're actually going to read Ephesians 2, verse 14 to 18. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with his commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father in one spirit. Jesus was crucified to achieve our unity. He died so that humanity could be reconciled. Most importantly, he spilled his blood to put to death the hostility between each other. It actually says that twice. Death, it's gone, hostility between each other. In verse 15, it states that his purpose was to create one new humanity out of the two. In other translations, it states that he made the two into one new man. Again, singular. So we are not just a fellowship that needs to love one another. We are one another. That's what Jesus died for. That is the depth of our unity. A unity that can only be achieved through Christ's blood. It says in Galatians 3.28, it says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile neither slave or free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. So we don't have the right in God's eyes to see each other as any other way except we're all children of God. So that's why loving each other and carrying each other's burden, it's not a suggestion. It's not even what we should do. It's, it's really not an option. It has to become part of who we are because, again, we are one another. We are one in every sense of the meaning. We need to be there for each other. We need to have compassion for any one of us that's hurting. We need to encourage one another and let each other know that we are there to help carry the burdens, which sometimes are more than one of us can handle as Garth went into earlier. And remember, and again, 
re-quoting what uh, Garth said, Jesus summed up the hundreds of laws and all the instructions of the prophets, love God with all your hearts and love one another like we love ourselves. Lastly, I, I'm very encouraged. Just like in biblical times, the greatest achievements of God's people comes through the greatest adversity. Sometimes trials like this are the only way we, we find the peace that God provides, that Jesus provides. Remember, Jesus not only offers peace, he not only gives peace, as it says in, in the scripture, he is our peace. His sacrifices achieve peace. It's already done. We just need to walk in it and help each other find it through Christ and our commitment to one another. That's Excellent. all I have. Excellent. I'm just going to spend one more minute just wrapping it up exactly what Ralph said. Appreciate very much the, uh, the affirmation from the Greek scholar. Um, so <laughs> the, the points are, you know, Jesus was intentional in his affirmation. You know, affirm tonight, declare uh, to others that, you know what? I will not be the source of somebody stumbling, somebody of faith stumbling. I am not going to be the cause that somebody needs this fellowship. Not, not my opinions, not even in my pain. You know, one thing that when I thought about this was the Macedonians, Paul commended them for giving in their poverty. To my brothers and sisters out there who are hurting, it's like we don't even want to be uh, disqualified from the prize because the world says, oh, this is how you should lash out and this is how you should be. It's like, no, exactly what Ralph says. We find our peace in Christ and the body, the church is the body of Christ. And so we should find peace in there. And so that's what we're going to be addressing the next four weeks is how can we make this church uh, a place where everyone can find peace because our needs vary in the world. The world treats us differently. So when we come back together, even though we are exactly like Ralph says, unified, the world, when we're coming back, the person who drags their tail back in is getting a different treatment from the world than another person. We're not the ones who make the distinctions, but we need to be aware of what people are dealing with in their everyday life so we can meet their needs. So I just avow that I'm not least not going to trip anybody up spiritually. Second point, uh, study of the life of Christ. I really think exactly what Ralph said. I think, and I, like I said, I've listened to podcasts. I've read a lot of things. Uh, and something I love about Michael Burns is he can bring it back to the Bible because the answers are in the Bible. God is the answer. Everything that we're dealing with has been dealt with at some level. And we've got to be willing to take that on. Jesus, Jesus would take on these challenges. He's not afraid. The third point uh, about his, his uh, affiliations is actually his advocacy. Let's destroy our comfort zones. Let's challenge ourselves to not just go make a new friendship, with someone, look, they're brothers in our fellowship who have privilege. I'm glad about that. I have some degree of privilege. It's not a racial privilege, but I have privilege. We need to be using that privilege. Paul knew when to use his privilege. He actually, there are times when Paul was like, you know, hey, I'm, I'm a Jew, but other times he's like, I'm a Roman citizen. You beat me in public, and you need to come and apologize to me publicly. So there's nothing, it's privilege is not sin, if you ever hear that term, but we should be aware of it and say, how can I use that almost as a shield to defend? those who the society doesn't value to the same degree. Um, I, you know, one of the things I've heard people talking about is intra-racial accountability. 
that this isn't solved just from uh, people of different ethnicities talking to each other, but people within ethnicities. It, it, when, when people say, hey, I know what you're going through, but let's still be righteous about our response. And other people are saying, hey, how come you've been silent? How come you haven't said anything? How come you haven't advocated for other people? We need a lot more intraracial accountability. Um, Peter and Paul, they did this, right? Paul confronted Peter in front of the other disciples saying, hey, Peter, I saw what you did. When, when the other Jews aren't around, you're like, hey, look at me, I'm cool, I'm an ally. And then as soon as they come, you're like withdrawing and like, and he's like, that's not right. And that was Paul a Jew calling out Peter a Jew saying, that's not right the way you treat the Gentiles differently based on who you're with. And you know what? That's what the church dealt with. And that was, that's that intra-racial, intra-ethnic accountability goes a long way because it, it, it's taken very differently when it's somebody who you can relate to who's saying to you, hey, you know, we can be better Christians here and here dealing with this topic. And the last thing is affirming our compassion. Um, the word compassion literally means to suffer with. And that's how Jesus, that's how God introduced himself to the, the Israelites. When Moses say, who should I tell these people that you are? And he says, tell them I'm slow to anger. I'm full of compassion. I've heard their cries. You know, I've always been fascinated by why did Jesus bother crying at Lazarus's uh, death? Why did he cry at his tomb? Because sometimes that's what's needed. In fact, he was planning to raise him. He already said, I have this in mind. I'm just praying for the benefit of those who are here. I'm going to raise him. And if it was me, I'd just be like, yo, no, stop the crying. Watch this. You know, that would be me. But there's a time for crying. And, and he just stood there, didn't raise him, and just cried because the people around him were hurting and he wanted to be in the same place they were emotionally. So that's all I got to say. Thank you for listening. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. I hope this makes sense. This has been an episode of the Southern Connecticut Church of Christ podcast. Please subscribe so you can keep up to date with the latest podcast.